Hi, I'm Cheryl, and I'm a mom, coach, domestic abuse survivor, and host of the Healthy Mom After Divorce podcast, where I help moms survive their high-conflict divorce and develop safe, healthy, and sustainable co-parenting strategies. I know it feels scary, but with the right tools, mindset, and education, you can do this. It may not be easy, but there is light at the end of that tunnel. So let's take that next step together and get this episode started. Hey, Healthy Mamas. Welcome to the 26th episode of the Healthy Mom After Divorce podcast. I am your host, Cheryl, and I'm really glad you've taken the time to listen today. You can find the full transcript for this episode at healthymomafterdivorce.com slash 26. Today, I want to talk about abuse. One of my goals is to educate people on what abuse can look like, especially the type of abuse that goes beyond what the stereotypical depiction of it can be. You know, that one that we've all come to recognize and understand. I also want to take a moment here to give a trigger warning for this episode. I want to educate, but I also know that discussions around abuse can be very triggering for some people. I won't be going into any graphic detail, but I will provide some examples to illustrate some of my points. So if you think this episode might not be for you, that is absolutely okay. Also, because I'm discussing abuse, it might not be an episode for younger ears. So please use your discretion before listening on. When we talk about abuse, many things come to mind. More specifically, if we say domestic abuse or domestic violence, many of us think of physical abuse. More specifically, a woman with cuts and bruises at the hands of her spouse comes to mind. The problem with this is that we get tunnel vision and it's easier to miss the other forms of abuse. Furthermore, if you are or have been subject to abuse, but it never became physical, you might have been gaslit or gaslit yourself into thinking you weren't actually a victim of abuse. As I go through this episode, you will hear me use the term domestic violence most often. I may also say intimate partner violence or domestic abuse. In all those cases, I'm referring to the same thing. Also, when I use the terms victim and abuser, I'll be referring primarily to heterosexual romantic relationships with the woman as the victim and the man as the abuser. This is for two reasons. Number one is for simplicity, consistency, and flow of what I'm discussing. And number two, statistically, women are more at risk to be victims of domestic violence. That said, Violence and abuse knows no gender, nor is it reserved for romantic heterosexual relationships. It happens in all forms of relationships, regardless of their nature or the gender identity of the parties. The key to remember here is when it comes to abuse, it's that hallmark power dynamic that exists in all these situations because at its core, abuse is about power and control over another. 
So when I talk about domestic violence or abuse, the subtypes I will refer to are physical, psychological, sexual, legal, financial, and technological. I'm going to go through each one of these so you have a better understanding of them and how they can manifest both in a marriage and post-separation. Now, keep in mind, there are different ways to group types of abuse, and many of them fall under uh, multiple categories. So don't get too bogged down on how I group them. One of the big challenges I think we need to overcome as a society is education, because so many people don't even know they're being abused. Often, people report things just feeling off, and they really can't figure out what's going on or how to fix it. What I think is important here to learn is what domestic violence looks like in all of its forms so that you can recognize it in your life or in someone else's life. I think that knowing that you were abused in your relationship is crucial in understanding how your divorce and co-parenting relationship will play out. So let's start with a general definition of abuse. It's essentially a pattern of behavior by a party, i.e. the abuser, in a relationship used to gain and maintain power and control over another party, i.e. the victim. The key point here, and like I mentioned earlier, is it's about power and control. Now, if you've been abused in your marriage, I can guarantee you, you will be abused post-separation. How do you know whether or not you've been abused in your marriage? Some things are very easy to see, but a lot of abuse is very covert, which is what makes it particularly insidious. The key is recognizing it so you can prepare and defend against it after you've separated. So in this episode, I will share the various forms of abuse so you can see how it might have occurred in your marriage and how you can expect it to occur post-separation. And it's really important to know that just because you leave an abusive relationship does not mean the abuse stops. So many of us fall into this hopeful line of thinking. Some of the abuse stops simply because access has been decreased, but lots of it simply evolves and continues for years. So the first one on the list is the most obvious, physical abuse. And as I said, this is the one that kind of comes to mind when we first think about domestic violence. And if I ask someone to describe it and to be more specific, I usually hear things like shoving, slapping, punching, pinning down or against the wall, pinching, those sorts of things. And these are all very much examples of physical abuse and are very, very scary. But there are other forms of physical abuse that you may not consider abuse because there's no actual physical contact between the abuser and the victim. So some examples of physical abuse that are nonviolent would be, for instance, blocking your entry or exit. So this includes blocking your body, say, as you try to walk in or out of a space, or perhaps even blocking your vehicle by standing in front of it or blocking it with their own. Another example would be driving erratically or dangerously while you're the passenger in the vehicle. Maybe locking you in a space, like a room, a home, or a vehicle. Or perhaps following you around and not letting you move away from them. 
The reason why these non-violent examples are important to recognize as abuse is that these are the ones that could more easily show up post-separation. The violent types of abuse like hitting and shoving are generally more likely to happen during your relationship as you're in close proximity when living together. It is a bit harder for an abuser to physically assault you after you've separated. But things like blocking your exit, for instance, is definitely something that could be done by an abuser after separation. Think about trying to leave your parking garage and them sitting in their vehicle blocking the exit. Or standing by your vehicle blocking your ability to get in. Or maybe locking you out of your home, preventing you from being able to enter to retrieve your things. These are physical abuse tactics that continue to be available to an abuser post-separation, so being aware of them can help you mitigate them. Now, before I get into the other forms of abuse, I want to introduce you to a term you may or may not have heard before, and this term is coercive control. Now, there are lots of very wonderful people that work in this space, and they can define this far better than I can. So I'm going to use one of their definitions here. One of those people is Dr. Christine Marie Cocciola. She is wonderful. And on her website, she defines coercive control as follows. And I quote, a pattern of behavior that encompasses other abuses that may be overt or covert. This abuse is based on the need for control by the offender and is the foundation of most domestic abuse. Coercive control includes psychological abuse, such as manipulation, intimidation, gaslighting, and isolation. It may also include financial, legal, and sexual abuse. Perhaps the worst and most heartbreaking tactic of coercive control is the use of children as weapons in multiple ways, including attempts to harm the relationships between adult victims and child victims. So I'll put a link to her website in the show notes so you can go check her out if you like. So now I'm going to move on to the second one on my list, and that is psychological abuse. Now, under this section, I'm going to include other forms of abuse you may have heard of before, like emotional, mental, and verbal. Psychological abuse comes in many, many forms, and it is extremely effective in gaining control over another person. Now, psychological abuse is very common with coercive controllers. Some obvious examples are gaslighting, dog whistling, insults, name calling, constant blaming and criticizing, threats, intimidation, and punishments. So examples of punishments would be things like the silent treatment or isolation. They may also use threats to harm themselves or to consume excessive amounts of alcohol or drugs. It may sound something like an ultimatum, you know, if you don't do this, then this. Now, before I go any further, I want to touch back on two terms that I just mentioned that you may not have heard of before. And those terms are gaslighting and dog whistling. Now, gaslighting, which actually also happens to be the Merriam-Webster 2022 word of the year, it's a psychological manipulation by an abuser that often occurs over a long period of time that causes the victim to question their own perceptions of reality. It creates instability, confusion, and uncertainty in the victim, as well as an increased dependency on the abuser. It is particularly insidious and very damaging to the victim. 
Now, dog whistling is a form of gaslighting that can be used in public. It's essentially when a narcissistic abuser manipulates their victim in public without the other people around knowing they're doing it. So, for example, an abuser may use a word or a phrase that is completely innocuous to others, but means something entirely different to their victim. So I'll give you a simple example so it's easy to identify. Say your abuser has a master's degree. Their parents and siblings also all went to university. The whole family is uber educated. Now, conversely, you do not have any post-secondary education. Now, whether or not you entered that relationship with insecurities about your education level, your abuser has spent years criticizing you about your lack, quote unquote, of education. And now you're extremely insecure about your education because your abuser has systematically gaslit you into believing you are less than for not having the education level they have. Now, no one else knows they say this to you because it's always done in private. So now you're at a social event and you're chatting with some people and one of them shares that they just completed their undergrad degree. An example of dog whistling would be where your abuser makes a big deal congratulating this person, saying how important it is to get a post-secondary education, going on and on. Now to others, they're just being supportive of this person's achievement. But to you, it is further gaslighting and cruelty because you are further getting the abusive message. Now, the other way this can show up is with code words. An abusive parent could say to their child, hey, do you need to take a trip to the bathroom? Now, to others who hear this, this isn't abusive. It's just a parent asking if their kid needs to go pee. But if that parent has been abusing the child, they could have groomed that child to know that, quote, a trip to the bathroom means something completely different, like some sort of punishment, for instance. When it comes to post-separation abuse, psychological abuse will be one of the most common forms of abuse a victim could experience. Women who leave abusive relationships but don't share kids with their abuser are often better able to go no contact with their abuser. No contact is absolutely the best option when available. But if she shares kids with him, some amount of contact in order to co-parent will be needed. And so long as there is contact, there are opportunities for abuse. So the key is not to try to prevent it all because you can't, but rather know how it happens so you can structure your divorce and co-parenting situation to best protect you and your children. So for instance, if verbal abuse was a part of your marriage, so think name calling, constant criticism, threats, insults, then one idea is keeping all communication between you and your co-parent in writing only. An abuser is less likely to put verbal abuse in writing as it creates documentation and evidence that could be used against them. Now, don't get me wrong. They'll still put toxic stuff in writing, especially at the beginning or when something sets them off, but it will still be less than if they get to talk to you in person or on the phone. They are more likely to say abusive things to you in those cases because if you try to tell anyone what they said to you, it becomes his word against yours. So minimizing opportunities to speak in person or on the phone should help. So I'm going to go through a list of examples of psychological abuse that could continue post-separation to you and your kids so you know what to look for and what to prepare for. 
So as I mentioned, gaslighting, including dog whistling, stalking, smear campaigns by your abuser or their friends, their family, their new partner, constant communication from your abuser, like relentless texts and emails, butt dials from your abuser, you know, regular ones, as in they call you, but then they say it was an accident. Your abuser passing information through the children. Your abuser speaking ill of you to the children. Damage to your property. Your abuser filing false claims about you and your family to authorities. Your items being stolen or disappearing. They could break into your home. Now, I want to be clear. I am not trying to scare you. I'm trying to educate you so that you can move through your high conflict divorce with as much peace and confidence as possible. I truly was not aware of how difficult my divorce would be and what things my ex-husband was capable of. And had I known, I would have put more protections in place early on. This is why I want to educate others on what steps they can take and what they can expect post-separation. Now, number three on the list is sexual abuse. Now, there isn't as much to say about sexual abuse in terms of post-separation abuse as it is more likely to occur within the marriage if we're talking about, you know, a husband abusing a wife. That said, you may not know you were even subject to sexual abuse in your marriage or you only figured it out after you'd already left. I mean, you're still raising kids together, so it is something to be aware of if for no other reason than to teach your children what is okay and what is not okay. As a general definition, sexual abuse is essentially any action that impacts the victim's ability to control the circumstances of sexual activity. It can be anything from violent rape to sexual coercion to preventing a victim's access to birth control. Now, you may not have heard of the term sexual coercion before, so I'll provide some examples here so you're aware. Essentially, it's an abuser coercing their victim into sexual activities with them using manipulative techniques like threats, gaslighting, or guilt. For instance, a husband threatening to cheat on his wife if she doesn't have sex with him when he wants, or telling her she isn't being a good wife unless she satisfies her husband, or perhaps berating or name-calling until she gives in, those types of things. Number four, legal abuse. Now, legal abuse is very likely something you will contend with post-separation if you're dealing with an abuser. A high-conflict person will often use the legal system to continue to abuse their victim, sometimes for years. Now, some of the ways you might see this post-separation are an abuser filing multiple legal claims. Many of them, you know, will be false and spurious, but they just kind of keep filing them. Um, unnecessarily drawing out legal proceedings, constantly engaging your lawyer to drive up your legal costs, not following court orders. So you have to continually go back to court for enforcement. How about taking numerous free consultations with local lawyers in order to conflict them out of representing you? So in case you don't know what I mean by this, a lawyer can't act for both parties. So if they've represented your ex, they can't ever represent you due to a conflict of interest. So even just taking a consultation with your ex, they'll be privy to information that conflicts them out of ever representing you. So in smaller communities where there are fewer lawyers, this can be devastating. They can represent themselves, which can cause issues and delays since they're not familiar with the law or legal proceedings in general. Now, legal abuse is an extremely common tactic with high-conflict people and something you should be prepared for during your divorce and for many years after. 
And one final thought, they may not just be filing proceedings in family court either. Even once your family matters have concluded, they could continue to file spurious claims in other courts like civil court. In many high-conflict divorces, the legal abuse is very real and ongoing for a long time. Number five, financial abuse. Now, financial abuse, like legal abuse, is very common post-separation. And I'm going to start by giving some examples of financial abuse within a marriage before I move on to how it could show up post-separation. So within a marriage, an abuser uh, can abuse their victims by making them financially dependent on them by limiting their access to bank accounts. They could refuse to let their victim work or go to school or advance their careers. They could refuse to put their victim's name on titles to assets. They could monitor their victim's spending habits. They could threaten financial ruin and destitution should their victim not comply with their demands. They could damage their victim's credit by running up their credit cards and not making payments or forcing their victims to file for bankruptcy. They could force their victim to hand over paychecks, credit cards, and bank passwords. They could threaten to lie to officials to claim their victim is lying or cheating the system. They could sabotage their victim's work responsibilities. Now, there's a whole ton of ways this can happen. These are just a few, you know, a few examples. So after separation, abusers can absolutely continue to financially abuse their victims by refusing to divvy up assets, refusing to sell property that they're required to sell, withholding support or pay it only sporadically, uh, drive up their victim's expenses like on legal bills, those sorts of things. So like I said, Just like legal abuse, financial abuse is very common in high-conflict divorces. Now, the last thing on my list is technological abuse. Now, this is a newer form of abuse since technology has only really become ubiquitous in the last 30 years or so. Abusers can verbally and psychologically abuse their victims using technology over social media, text messaging, email, So some examples would be, you know, posting nasty comments online or sending intimate photos of their victims to others or sending incessant texts and emails to their victims. And they can also use technology to abuse their victims by monitoring and tracking them with video cameras, GPS devices, phone plans. So often people forget what kind of information people have access to through their phone plan, especially if it's a family plan. So during their marriage, some victims of abuse may wonder why their spouse always knows where they are. That thought might sound really familiar to a lot of people. In post-separation, it can be a similar situation. Victims wonder how their ex is always at the grocery store at the same time as them. The key here is these thoughts should not be ignored and steps should be taken to protect your right to privacy and freedom. So here's some tips uh, that I would you know, suggest thinking about after you separate. Number one, your phone. If you're on a shared phone plan, after separation, remove yourself as soon as possible and sign up for a brand new plan. And frankly, if you can get a whole new phone, do that as well. Number two, your home. If it was your marital home, sweep it for video and recording devices. Reprogram any door locks and garage doors. And even consider installing security cameras. They're really quite affordable these days and they provide so much peace of mind. The third thing, your car. 
sweep it for tracking devices. I know that sounds like it doesn't happen, but it does. And also consider getting your key fobs reprogrammed. You just, you just never know. The fourth thing, your computer, your email, your online logins, change every single one of your passwords do, and do it quickly. The key thing to remember with all types of abuse and the cycle of abuse is that it's about power and control. And my purpose with this episode was to educate on less obvious forms of abuse within a marriage and how they can continue to manifest post-separation. Like I said earlier, I didn't really know what my ex was capable of until it was too late. Had I known sooner, I may have been able to safeguard myself earlier on. So much abuse is not physical, and this is really important to understand. Recognizing that you were abused in your marriage will better prepare you to weather the storm coming your way post-separation. I have heard and read so many crazy accounts of post-separation abuse. It never ceases to amaze me how far some abusers will go to harm people around them. If you are in an abusive relationship, leaving must be done delicately with your safety and your kids' safety at the top of the priority list. Please reach out to local organizations for help. Talk to trusted family and friends so they know your plans. And work with professionals who understand all forms of domestic violence, so they can work with you to come up with a plan. If you've left and you're in the middle of your divorce, this might be one of the worst times of your life. I know it feels like it'll never end. Many victims report that after they leave, the abuse gets worse. But I want you to know that it does get better, even if it takes years. So keep your support system in place, take the steps you need to protect yourself, and hang in there. If you're a few years out, divorce is final, and you're in the ongoing co-parenting phase, you may still be subject to post-separation abuse, especially through communication, the legal system, breaching court orders, financially, those kinds of things. There are ways, though, to help mitigate some of this and protect your mental and physical health, so please reach out to professionals you trust if you could use some help with that. I remember the thought I had over and over was, what the heck is happening? I was so confused. Maybe you can relate. Education is such an important part of healing. So no matter what phase of your journey you're in, if you'd like to talk about what steps you can take to protect yourself and your kids through your divorce and beyond, please reach out. You can find me and all the ways I work with people at HealthyMomAfterDivorce.com. Keep fighting, Healthy Mamas. These nasty abusers are no match for us. So chin up, shoulders back, and keep marching on. And as strange as it sounds, it is possible to be the victim of ongoing post-separation abuse and be healthy, which is really great news because healthy moms raise healthy kids. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review. And if you like what you heard, share this episode with other moms. Don't forget to follow me on social media. And if you want to learn more about me and what else I have to offer, head over to HealthyMomAfterDivorce.com. And while you're there, why not grab your copy of my free guide, Take Your Power Back, Four Ways to Feel in Control Through Your High Conflict Divorce. One foot in front of the other, Healthy Mama. You got this. I promise.